to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam O'Cronin, and today we're going to explore a concept that many believe to be the single greatest mystery in our universe, emergence. Emergence is the phenomenon that describes how order arises from chaos, how intelligence arises from stupidity, and how higher level beings emerge from a collection of lower level beings. So I think it'd be good to start with a few examples to make this concept more concrete, and then we can go into the significance of emergence and the future of emergence. The cells in your body. So when you look at the cells in your body, it's easy to think of them as sort of low-level, independent beings that are interacting with one another in a pretty simplistic way, right? They have different receptors, they interact with one another, and they may make mistakes. They don't really seem to be as conscious or alive as we would consider ourselves to be. And yet when you add up all of these cells, you create you, a human being. And as far as we know, humans are the most sophisticated conscious beings in the known universe up to this point. So how do these small, dumb cells add up to create a human? That's the question we're going to answer today. Another example of emergence is with an ant colony. So again, if you've ever owned an ant farm and you look at ants daily, you'll notice how seemingly dumb these ants are, right? You might find two ants that are basically fighting over the same leaf for weeks, just pulling the leaf back and forth, totally unable to decide which direction they should take the leaf. But when you see the ants operating as a whole, as a colony, it's really impressive to see what they can do. So for instance, one example is, imagine an anteater comes and eats all of the worker ants from an ant colony. Then how does the ant colony recover from that now that it doesn't have any more workers? Well, what they've found that happens is that Ants have a pheromone scent that they emit whenever they're doing their job. So a worker ant emits a certain scent for, for when it's working. An army ant emits a certain scent for when it's protecting the colony. Sort of like how when you're working out at the gym, you have a certain smell of your sweat, like maybe it's more sweet. Whereas when you're just stressed and you're sweating because you're so anxious, that has more of like a sour smell to it. In the same way, ants have certain pheromones that they'll notice. And so if you have a situation where all the worker ants have been wiped out by an anteater, the army ants will start to realize that they hardly ever smell the worker ant smell. And so once they reach a certain point, they will actually change their role in society from an army ant to a worker ant. And this is kind of similar to me as when an entrepreneur in human society notices that there's a need that's not being filled in society and so they will change their job and actually go fill that need and start a business. So even though on an individual level, whether you're considering an ant or a cell or a human within a civilization, when you look at the higher level big picture of all the ants or humans or cells added up, they seem to operate with much more intelligence. Another example that I thought was pretty cool is fireflies. So, you know, in America, fireflies light up at, you know, different times. They're not all lighting up in sync with one another. But when you go to certain places in Africa and Southeast Asia, 
all the fireflies light up at the exact same time throughout the forest. So you can be paddling a canoe down a river and the whole forest will light up and then it'll go dark and it'll light up and then it will go dark. And researchers have actually experimented by taking some of these fireflies from their habitat and moving them into a hotel room where the researchers were staying and they released, you know, four of these fireflies in the hotel room. And what they found is that after a little while of lighting up at different times, those four fireflies all started lighting up in sync with one another again. So that raises the question, how do these fireflies know to all light up at the same time? It's not like any one firefly is leading the charge or sending out communiques to the other fireflies. It just happens. It just emerges as a natural process. Another example with human society is imagine a flower market. So there's one block in NYC that has all of these flowers that you can buy. There's all these vendors. It's pretty much the place to go if you need to get flowers. How did that emerge? Well, what tends to happen is you'll have one sort of random event occur, like one person will decide to start selling flowers there. And then you'll have another person who's a flower salesman who will notice, oh, this guy's actually doing a pretty, some pretty good business here. It might be a good place for me to set up my shop. So the second flower salesman will set up his shop sort of upstream from the first sales uh, salesman. So if everyone's coming from downtown or everyone's coming from a popular subway stop, then you would have the second flower salesman maybe goes closer to that subway stop or closer to downtown. So people will notice that flower shop first. And this happens time and time again where everyone's positioning themselves until eventually there's this sort of flower market that just emerges on this block. And it's not that any one person decided, okay, this is the part of New York City that we're going to have all of our flower shops. It just emerged out of, you know, first starting from some sort of randomness, then realizing that there's some success in this particular strategy of putting a flower shop here. And then other people come and it creates a real neighborhood of flower shops. And you can think about this on so many different levels. That's why I love thinking and talking about emergence is, you know, we already know what it's like to go super small and zoom in on the cellular level. But when you zoom out from towns to cities and even nations of human beings interacting with one another, you can see that they really do operate similar to a collective organism. You know, we even call highways arteries, uh, you know, like the arteries in your heart, because you're really pumping out cars and people and pedestrians and business activity from the heart of the city, which is downtown, to the other parts of the city, uh, uh, the other parts of even the nation. And it just sort of pulses out. And when you look at the flow from, you know, rush hour in the morning, a little less traffic in the midday, rush hour in the evening, and then less traffic at night while people are sleeping, it has a pulsating effect that's not dissimilar to how a heart pumps blood to different parts of an organism. So on a human society level, our society emerges. It's an emergent phenomenon. Another example that I really like is in technology, specifically Google search. 
So Google search used to be purely top down, meaning they had something that was called PageRank. And the way that PageRank worked is that it would basically scour the web for which pages have certain keywords in them that someone's searching for, and whichever pages and websites have the most of that keyword most prominently, that's the result that would show up. So this was a good early uh, initiation of Google search, but it was really easy to game the system because you could basically just like, let's say you wanted to rank for the best barbershop in NYC. You could literally put that phrase in every header of every page of your website. And maybe you also get a bunch of your friends to comment in the comments. This is the best barbershop in NYC, number one barbershop in NYC. If you do that over and over again, you can trick Google into thinking you really are the number one barbershop in NYC, even if you aren't. So that was the first initiation of Google. And that does not, that's not based on emergence. That's based on top down control cause and effect. However, the current state of Google is based on technology called rank brain. Now rank brain is at a bottom up approach where Google will monitor what you do after you search to see if you found what you were looking for. So let's say I search best barbershop in NYC, I go to some website, but then two seconds later, I hit the back button and then I go to some other search result. Well, Google knows by my behavior that I didn't find what I was looking for. So that website must not be the highest quality website based on my desires to find the best barbershop in NYC. Now, when enough people do this and, you know, some people end up going to a site and then they stay there for a long time, they click around, they don't go back to the Google search console. In that case, it seems clear that the person did find what they were looking for. So by repeating this process over and over and over again, Google is able to leverage the wisdom of the crowd. And that has allowed them to create the most intelligent search algorithm possibly the most intelligent algorithm in existence. Another example that you may have actually tried out at some point in school or at a county fair is the example of guessing the weight of something. So there's a famous experiment where at a county fair, everyone was guessing the weight of an ox. And there was a researcher there who was really interested in proving that crowds are pretty dumb and the average guess is going to be really bad because the average person knows nothing about the weight of an ox or numbers or math. So this researcher wanted to tally up all of the results and see how they compared to the best guesses. But the interesting thing is that what they found is that the average guess of the weight of the ox was more accurate than any individual guess. So the average of all the guesses came out to be within one pound of the actual weight of the ox. It was just one pound off. Whereas even the closest individual guess was like 10 or 15 pounds off. So there's this invisible wisdom of the crowd that emerges when we all work together. That's even greater than any really intelligent individual. So another example that we did in my math class in high school is guessing how many jelly beans are in a jar. And I remember doing this experiment and I had my guess and some of the other smart kids had their guesses. And we were amazed that 
the average guess was more accurate than any of the really smart students in my in my school. So this just shows that similar to how Google uses wisdom of the crowd to create really intelligent search results, we collectively can pool our brain power and our intuitive power to come up with more intelligent solutions than any individual could. And that's a really important takeaway for this. Another example that is pretty also difficult to describe, but very consequential when we think about the nature of the universe is in physics. So I was watching some videos and listening to some interviews with physicists talking about this concept known as the E8 lattice. And you can look it up if you want to research this more, but essentially the E8 lattice is the object that many physicists believe to be the fundamental building block of our universe. And you could think of it almost like how a pixel is the building block of any sort of design file or like a movie. There will just be one pixel that has one color, it's two dimensional, and that's the building block of a 3D motion film, right? In the same sort of way, an E8 lattice is the building block of our reality. But the reason it's called E8 lattice is that it exists on, across eight dimensions. Now, we only have access to three dimensions, partially four. You know, there's the three-dimensional physical world, and we also are traversing time, which we don't have as much freedom to traverse. We can only really go in one direction. Uh, we're trapped in the arrow of, of time, as Stephen Hawking puts it. But you can imagine in physics, and based on our experiments with quantum computing and quantum physics, that the time realm, the fourth dimension, is not the end. It actually goes up to far more dimensions than what we have access to on our own. And when you consider that there is also quantum uncertainty, meaning you cannot deterministically predict any one event because just the very fact of you observing an interaction will change the interaction. And that's been proven through the double slit experiment with quantum, with, uh, quantum physics. In the same sort of way, we cannot predict the future from the past. This whole notion that cause and effect are the only real explanation for what's going on in the world is, an, is itself an illusion. And we know from physics and also quantum entanglement how two particles that exist in separate parts on time and space can actually be connected to one another and one moving can change the movements of another. We know that to be true through experimentation. And all of this is to say that we can sum up a lot of what's going on with physics with the following quote from a reputable physicist. All time is influencing all time, all the time. Okay, that's the quote. So what this means is that time really is an illusion. And the past does not create the future. It's more like the past affects the future, the future affects the past, and the present affects both the past and the future. Or another way of saying it is, all that exists is the eternal now. There is just what's going on right now, like... You know, you could think of it as a speedboat that's going in the ocean. And the wake that it's creating 
is both the wake of what's happened in the past, but also the wake of what's happened, what's going to happen in the future. So reality really emerges as a result of past, present, and future. So I would just like to say, before we get into what this means, try to open your mind to the possibility that cause is an illusion and that time is also an illusion. And imagine what reality would look like if you were able to traverse time in the same way that you can traverse space. Now, we've given some examples of emergence in cellular biology, with ant colonies, with fireflies, with human society, with Google search results, with guessing the weight of an ox or the number of jelly beans in a jar. Also with physics that we know through quantum entanglement and quantum uncertainty that time is an illusion and that there are more dimensions than just four and that reality is emerging as a result of the past, present, and future. It's not that the past is causing the future. So taking all of that into consideration, what does this mean? What should we make of the phenomenon of emergence? And that's what I want to talk about right now. I think one way to describe what this means is with an Alan Watts quote. He says, you didn't come into this world, you came out of it, like a wave from the ocean. You are not a stranger here. And another quote from Alan Watts, just like an apple tree produces apples, the earth produces people. So what Alan Watts is getting at is that oftentimes we think of ourselves as totally separate beings, disconnected from other beings, alone and afraid in a world I never made. But that is an illusion. We are not a stranger here. We are just as much of an earth of the earth as an apple tree is. So if you're looking at earth from an alien's perspective with a big telescope, you would see an apple tree and think, oh, this apple tree is something produced of this planet. It's, it's an earthling, just like all the other earthlings on that planet. In the same way, you would think of humans as being some sort of being that emerges along with Mother Earth. And, you know, the real difference is that an apple tree has roots that connect it to the ground, so it can't really move around in the same way that humans do. But we're both just as connected to the earth as any other being is. So part of why emergence feels so strange is that we humans like to think of ourselves as sort of separate from the ongoings of evolution and the natural phenomenon of the universe. But really, our connections run so much deeper than that. You could almost think of it as we are all part of one organism. And this gets into the Gaia hypothesis, which essentially views Earth as one mega organism that is always sort of adjusting its parameters so that it is hospitable for life, so that it can continue to emerge and bring about more complex, more intelligent, more variant forms of life. So consider for a second that you are not some separate being, but that you are part of one giant organism. Just like how the cells in your body are part of one organism that is you, or the ants in an ant colony are part of one being that is the ant colony. In the same way, think of yourself as one small part of a larger being that is the earth or that is perhaps all conscious beings beyond Earth, even though we haven't 
yet found any outside of Earth. There is only one self. You could also say that there is no self. And Sam Harris refers to this as the seat of conscious awareness, or the space in which conscious thought arises. Think of the way he phrases that. There is no you that's identified with your thoughts and your experiences and the specific things in your life when you really strip away all of those layers of thought and experiences and everything you've gone through, there is only the seat of conscious awareness, the space in which consciousness arises. And that space is the same for all beings, all conscious beings. And you can feel this when you look into the eyes of your dog, you can tell, you can feel it in your bones that this animal is having the same sort of experience that I'm having now. Now, one, one uh, point that Alan Watts makes that I think is a great point is that every animal thinks of themselves as a human, meaning every animal thinks of themselves as the center of the universe. So even for a fish, like think of a human from a fish's perspective. Humans are all hairy. They've got these weird gangly limbs. They don't have nice, smooth fish scales the way we do. They do all this weird stuff on land and they have to wear these odd things when they come into our territory in the ocean. Those are some weird beings. They're not like us fish. And you can think about this from any animal's perspective, like from a cat, how weird it must seem to a human that cleans after our litter box and goes to work all day while we just lounge in the living room or explore in the alleyways. Any being thinks of itself as the center and every being is the center. Every being is part of the same mega being. And this is part of why I disagree with Sam Harris as it relates to free will. Because I think the, way, the question of whether there is or isn't free will is sort of beside the point. That's a low-dimensional way of viewing the problem. And we talk about this a lot in the future of free will. So if you want to get more into this aspect of it, check out that episode. But I think what Sam Harris misses when he talks about how there is no free will, all that exists is the environmental influences which basically make you into who you are. And Sam's argument is basically, look, you didn't choose your parents, you didn't choose your genes, you didn't choose your upbringing, you find yourself here, you respond to all of the environmental inputs, and that's what you do. You couldn't have done it any other way. I think that misses the point, because who's to say that you didn't, in some degree, choose your own reality? And when you consider that all of us are the same sort of being iterated through many different lives and you know across many different types of species you cannot say there's one causal link that cleanly pushes one action to another it all simply emerges just like how there's no one firefly that you know sends out communiques to get the other fireflies to start flashing all at once in the same way there is no causality that can connect every action from another action. So to think of free will as either existing or not existing is not true. We are both our environment and we are, are an organism. We are the organism slash environment. 
Now, one point that I do agree with Sam Harris on quite strongly is that all that exists is consciousness and its contents. Consciousness is the substrata of reality. If a tree falls in the woods and no one is around to hear it, then it doesn't make a sound. Uh, you know, that's the basic finding that we've found through physics, which is that reality is information. That's basically the current state of what we believe reality to be. It's information. And when you think of what information is, it's some something that can be read by a conscious being in order to create some sort of impression. And if there's no one to process the information and read the information, then the information is essentially idle. It doesn't work itself into reality without that conscious agent. So in the same way, Sam often talks about all that exists is consciousness and its contents. And that is very true. When you just, you know, it's like Rene Descartes, I think therefore I am. You don't even need the I think part. I think is the contents. I am is the consciousness part. What we know to be certain, whether you're a brain in a vat or whether this is a simulation, no matter what is going on with reality beyond our knowledge, we know that it is like something to be us. There is some sort of conscious quality of existence that we are experiencing moment to moment. So you cannot consider the phenomenon of emergence or just the nature of reality without taking consciousness into account because that really is the substrata of our reality. Now I want to conclude this section about the importance of emergence and what it means with a short story by Andy Weir. Um, I'm just going to briefly talk about it. I'm not going to read the whole short story. It's really fantastic. So the short story begins where you die in a car crash. And once you die, you meet God, who is sort of the enlightened sum of all beings, uh, enlightened to the furthest extent, extent possible. And he tells you that, you know, rather than going to heaven or hell, you're going to be reincarnated as a new conscious being next. So you ask him, oh, so the Hindus and the Buddhists were right. And he responds that all religions are right in their own way. And you ask, well, if I'm going to be reincarnated as a blank slate, then doesn't that mean all of my life experiences and all of my knowledge are meaningless and for nothing? He says, no, you, in fact, have so much more within your soul than you ever thought was possible. You have all the knowledge and experience of all your past lives. And it's only because the human brain is limited that you're unable to realize the full scope of your knowledge and all of your past lives. This is kind of like how people refer to some as having an old soul, where they have some wisdom even when they're young. This kind of gets at the same idea of some people having lived through many experiences and many lives that they don't have access to because they have a certain wisdom within them, even if they don't really know it yet. And so God then tells him that he's going to be reincarnated as a Chinese peasant girl in 540 AD. And so the protagonist remarks that, wait, I'm going to go back in time? And he says, well, sort of. Time as you know it only exists in your universe. For higher dimensional beings like the God that you're talking to, 
You can traverse through time just as you can through space. So you ask, wait a minute, if I'm reincarnated in different times throughout history, isn't there a chance that I could interact with myself? He says, yes, and that happens all the time, every day, because there is only one being. There is only you, iterated through many lives, many species, past and future. There is only one being, and that being is you. You ask him, well, what's the point? Why am I being reincarnated over and over again through all these many lives, you know, as Hitler and all the people Hitler killed and as Jesus and all the people who followed Jesus and every possible being on earth was a different version of you, yourself, the one conscious being in this universe. And he says the point of all this is so that you can mature and emerge and develop and become a higher dimensional being like the God that you are talking to. This is the same sort of concept that Eckhart Tolle talks about where the purpose of your life is to help usher in a new earth, as he calls it. And that's your purpose. Your purpose is to become a greater version of yourself. And for us all collectively as different iterations of the same one being, to all collectively become greater than the sum of our parts. And this short story concludes by the realization that the whole universe is an egg whose purpose is for you to emerge. Now let's talk about the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. In my mind, the worst case scenario is that we mammalian monkey humans die out before we are able to usher in a new earth, before we are able to reach peak enlightenment. And when you think about all of the chances that earth has had to create super enlightened, super sophisticated beings, it's kind of amazing that we're just one little pit stop along this long process from really the Big Bang all the way to the first you know, cellular organisms on Earth to now where we are today. And it's hard to wrap your head around how short of a time we have lived here relative to other beings. There's this incredible fact I came across, which is that we humans today are closer to the T-Rex in the time scale than the T-Rex was to the Stegosaurus because dinosaurs roamed around for millions of years, 86 million years, dinosaurs were roaming around and just the dominant force on earth until the the meteor hit. Whereas we humans, the mammalian age only began like 68 million years ago and human civilization has only been around for like 10,000 years. So while I don't think there is a risk in the process of emergence halting completely as it as it relates to planet earth and us just collectively becoming a higher dimensional more sophisticated more intelligent enlightened organism i do think it's possible that mammals may fail humans may fail and we may need another chance with other beings millions of years from now who will still be us right they will still be the same self iterated through many 
you know, different times with new species. So Nick Bostrom talks about this as pulling a black ball from the urn of invention. So you could say that the dinosaurs, they didn't necessarily pull a black ball from the urn of invention, but they had the unfortunate uh, luck of having a meteor impact them and wipe out all whatever progress they had made up to that time. In the same way, we could create runaway climate change. Uh, some humans could develop a bioweapon, a virus, you know, like coronavirus, but far worse. Uh, nuclear war could happen. Nanotechnology could turn every atom on Earth into just lumpy gray matter. There could be autonomous weapons. All of these are threats to the progress we monkey human mammals have created up until now. To summarize, my worst case scenario is that humanity pulls a black ball from the urn of invention. It results in our demise. And we have to wait millions of years for a new earthling to emerge as the premier intelligent species on our planet. And that would be sad because, you know, humans have been called the ape that understood the universe. And we really have come a long way and we've had a pretty incredible ride so far. So it would be sad in, in a way to have all that progress end and for us to have to wait millions of years for a new intelligent species to emerge and understand the universe as well as we do and then understand it even better than we do. Now let's get into the best case scenario. Best case scenario. My best case scenario is that we trust in the wisdom of the crowd and we empower individuals to contribute to our collective progress in the same sort of way that Google's rank brain uses the wisdom of the crowd to create greater intelligence, just as, as how democracies use the wisdom of the crowd to create better governments, and just how guessing the weight of an ox or the number of jelly beans in a jar results in more accuracy than any one individual. So recently we've had this infatuation with leadership and we need strong leaders and there's been all of these cults of personality and I think you know some of that is warranted but a lot of that is misguided and there is so much intelligence when we consider what individuals are able to do collectively even when they're not really organized in any sort of top-down fashion and right now we're in an economic crisis and in the past we've always done top-down approaches anytime there's been a recession or a financial crisis it's pretty much always been giving a lot of money to the banks giving a lot of money to big businesses and empowering these big organizations to try to fix things what we've never tried is a bottom-up approach where we give money to people. We empower people to make choices for themselves, for people to create new businesses and fill different needs and do what they feel is necessary to move our society and our economy forward. And yes, we have had some success with the recent stimulus bill, but even with that $2 trillion stimulus bill, only three cents of every dollar goes to individuals. The rest goes to banks and big businesses. 
in my best case scenario, we reverse this trend and we start trusting in the wisdom of crowds again. And there are some inklings that this may be more likely than not. There's been a lot of momentum towards universal basic income. The Pope just called for universal basic income. That's pretty amazing. Also, Medicare for all. That's becoming more and more popular. It seems quite likely now that there will be some version of it in the next you know, 10 years, whenever it actually becomes implemented. And there is more concern about the flourishing of our total environment, not just the human world, but the natural world as well. There's been more concern about environmentalism and really caring about all beings, not just the, not just what's in the man-made world. And when you consider emergence and the fact that we're all really the same conscious being just in the different bodies of different people and different organisms, like different you know dogs, cats, even cows and pigs and chickens and livestock and whatever else, you can have a lot more empathy for all types of beings and you can have a goal that's more high level that has all of us succeeding in the future, not just a world of concrete where there's humans and dogs and every other animal is pretty much out for themselves. So my best case scenario is that we leverage the wisdom of the crowd, we realize that we're all the same being and that the goal should be for us all to emerge as better versions of ourselves and that this results in a greater level of empathy and a greater level of identity with a broader scope of individuals, not just our little clan or our little political group or even our nation or even our species, humanity, but all earthlings. And when we can see ourselves in all beings throughout planet Earth, that's going to result in the greatest level of progress and the greatest likelihood in us ushering in a new Earth, as Eckhart Tolle puts it. Now let's talk about the most likely scenario. Most likely scenario. My most likely scenario is that we will continue to emerge. We as collective conscious beings will continue to make progress and to become better versions of ourselves. However, I think it's too soon to say whether we in our instantiation as humans will be the ones to usher in a new earth. It may very well be that humans will die out, kill ourselves, grow too fast without enough safeguards or concern for side effects, and that we will have to wait millions of years for some other version of an earthling to be that emergent, intelligent, enlightened being. I can't really say one way or the other which is more likely. However, what I can say is that the symphony is going to continue. And I do think it's an apt metaphor to think of evolution and the whole process really from the Big Bang until now as this giant symphony. It starts out, it has some slow regular movements, it's whipping itself up, it's gaining some energy, and right now we are in a pretty spectacular part of the symphony. The energy is up, there's a lot going on, there's a little bit of randomness, but it's all within this greater level of order. 
and this symphony is still amping up. We are not yet at the crescendo. And that crescendo is either going to be achieving enlightenment and really ushering in that new earth that Eckhart Tolle talks about, or it's going to be our demise, and then the symphony is going to need to start back over again. But in any case, the process of emergence will continue. I truly believe that will be the most likely scenario. And I'd like to leave you today with a parable that can perhaps shed some light on your own life and how to perhaps forgive yourself if you're not in the place where you would like to be in life. And this is the parable of the woman with the leaky bucket. So there's a woman who every morning she has to walk five miles to the river to get water for her kids. And she has one bucket that is fine, but another bucket has a hole in it. And she carries this over her shoulders. And by the time she comes back from the river, one of the buckets has leaked out, so only half of it's left. And the woman is complaining to her friend one day saying, oh, I'm so poor, I can't even afford a new bucket. Half of the water leaks out from that bucket every time I, by the time I walk back to my kids. And it's so terrible. I just really am, am uh, devastated about my place in life and my poor luck. And the friend says to the woman, yes, but look at the side of the road where the leaky bucket is. There are all of these plants and flowers that are blooming that otherwise would never have been here. And the other side of the road where the bucket doesn't have a leak is totally barren and it doesn't have any leaves or flowers or any of the beautiful foliage that you've created. So I, I love this parable because it shows that even if you aren't getting maximum fulfillment and satisfaction out of the current state of your life right now, you can take solace in knowing that part of what you're doing may be part of the greater plan of emergence and that some of what you say to others or what you do, or, or even if you totally screw up your life and you serve as an example for other people who know you of what not to do, whatever your personal situation is in life, it is part of this like master phenomenon of emergence. And you may be helping out others through your very actions, even if you're not aware of it. So I, I think that's a good place for us to leave, leave this today. If you have any thoughts about this, feel free to reach out. I, I love talking about this stuff. And you can tweet me anytime at Madame or Cronin or at Hence the Future. This has been the Future of Emergence. Thank you all for listening. And I'll see you next time. what will inevitably happen. The past, the present, and the future. Present.